And let me add my uh, welcome to Andy's. It is great to have you with us, especially if you are uh, new to us. Uh, lots of new people come through uh, the area at this time of year. It's great if you've come to join us in the last few weeks. You're joining us at a really uh, opportune moment because we're looking at this book of Philippians. We're in our first talk uh, today and we're going to go on through Philippians for the rest of the term. And I, I wonder if you're new to church or you're returning to church, I wonder what's uh, caused uh, that return. I was talking to a, an old school friend of mine uh, in the last couple of weeks and he said to me, I, I like the teachings of Jesus uh, but I couldn't go to church. I don't like the church. He'd grown up in his local Roman Catholic church uh, and he hadn't uh, enjoyed the, uh, his experiences there. Some people, uh, I think, uh, fall out of with, with the church uh, because they don't find it a loving place. And I'm sorry, if that's been your experience, let me apologise for the Christians who were in that church. Uh, some people uh, sitting outside will, will look at the newspapers and will have seen over the last few years the Church of England, for example, uh, torn apart by debates about women bishops and practising homosexuality. Others will have seen uh, the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland and North America uh, torn open and exposed uh, for the number of uh, paedophiles. And, and you might want to agree with my friend Jimmy. I find Jesus compelling. I love Jesus' teaching, but I don't like the church. And what we're going to do in this series in Philippians is to look at Jesus' life, uh, mainly in chapter 2, but Paul uses that to unpack the whole letter for us. We're going to look at the life and teachings of Jesus. Uh, we're going to see that uh, Jesus uh, turns our expectations on their head. That's going to be a challenge for us if we think we know Jesus. It's going to challenge us. And we're going to see that the church should copy Jesus. Take a look with me at verse 27 of chapter 1. Just across the page, a little 27, partway down the first column. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm not going to steal Andy Sunder for a couple of weeks' time, but we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? Chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Uh, the idea that you can drive a wedge between... Uh, the Jesus of the Bible and a Bible church is preposterous. Of course, we're not perfect the way Jesus is. And so there are going to be areas where we're not living up to Jesus' standard. But, Jesus, but Paul seems to think it's possible to live up to this calling. And wonderfully, this book of Philippians is a letter to a church that is doing that. Uh, Philippians, uh, the Philippian church is, if you like, the model New Testament church. They're a church that's doing it right, and Paul wants to encourage them to keep going. The church can be more Christ-like than we realise, and that's going to be a challenge for, for those of us who are looking in on Christian things. It's going to be a challenge even today for those of us who've been Christians for a long time. Let me show you a little bit from the context. It's, it's helpful when you're uh, opening a letter to look where we're going, just so you've got some idea. And let me show you that this is uh, the model church. Click over to the end of the book, uh, chapter 4 and verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but had an opportunity to show it. And then on to verse 14. 
It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, these baby Christians, when I set out from Macedonia, that's where Philippi is, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. From the very beginning of the church, they've been a model church, sharing in Paul's ministry from the very inception of the church. They've been going for 10 years or so now, we think. And Paul's writing, the occasion of his writing is their generosity in sharing with him in his imprisonment at the moment. And you can see in verse 5 of our, of our chapter, chapter 1, uh, he's writing because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They're a model church, partnering with Paul. But they're a church under pressure. So verse 7 of our passage Notice Paul talks about whether he's in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. It might leave open the question, is he in chains? Verse 17 leaves us in no doubt. There are preachers who are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but supposing they can stir up trouble for Paul while, while he is in chains. That's his trouble. He's in a Roman prison, and uh, the Philippians have sent resources to him to keep him going. Uh, they're facing a challenge. Paul is, is their apostle. He's their friend and he's in prison again. And people are saying, can he really have the true gospel? Look, we're out here preaching the gospel. No one's sending us to prison. Maybe Paul's got it wrong. And that's particularly challenging. Flick over to chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, the last cross-reference for a while, I promise. 3, verse 2. Watch out for those dogs those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. And again, I'll leave hanging quite a lot of what we're talking about there. But notice there are people who are coming in uh, who uh, teach falsely. It seems they're teaching uh, the Philippians that to be proper Christians, they have to be circumcised and follow uh, Jewish religious rites. So they're a church under pressure. Will they stand with Paul in his imprisonment as they have historically done? They're a great church. Will they keep going? They've got the true gospel, but there are people coming in from outside saying, you haven't got it right, you need these things as well. Uh, the Philippian church is a model church, but it's not a church without its challenges. And let's dive into our passage. That's the context. I want you to notice first Paul's confidence in the servant church, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Frequently, Paul opens his letters with a claim to his apostolic authority. Some, some way of saying to the church, I have the right to speak to you now. He doesn't do that here. Paul knows that they know his apostolic authority. They've been partnering with him for years. And so instead, he draws attention to the fact that, that he and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. And that's because that servanthood is a big theme in the letter. I said chapter 2, verse 5, our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Verse 7 of chapter 2, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. It is Jesus' character to be a servant leader, and so it is the character of Paul and Timothy to be servants of Christ as well. That is what you should expect to see in your leaders in the church. But Paul is not just a servant leader, he's writing to at the servant church. Look at this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So you might expect the letter to be written to the overseers and deacons. Mightn't you? 
You might expect Paul to want to address, as one leader to another, those in authority. But it's almost like Paul puts brackets around the together with overseers and deacons. It's a, a parenthetical statement, as it were. The focus, the people Paul is writing to, is to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Saints is just a Bible word for Christians. And Paul is saying, I'm writing to you, the whole church, all the saints, all the Christians, in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Notice that it's not uh, all the, the church in Philippi. Paul is not writing to a congregation. Paul is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That is, Paul understands that a real Christian is somebody who has put their trust in Jesus Christ. And what makes you part of the church is putting your trust in Jesus Christ. So let me say, if you're not somebody who trusts in Jesus, you're very welcome amongst us. But Paul is writing to to the church, which is the Christians gathered together. And they happen to be in Philippi. They happen to be in a, a house church, I guess, in Philippi. But Paul is saying... I'm writing to you Christians, those people trusting in Jesus, all of you together, grace and peace to you, the the Greek and the Hebrew uh, welcomes of letters, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God our Father, I, I took a look at the rest of Paul's letters, he tends to say God the Father. It's an objective statement of God's authority. Here it's God our Father. Paul is deeply convinced that here is a model church the whole Christian gathering, partners with him in the gospel, servants of Christ with him and Timothy, God our Father. Let me draw a couple of implications before we move on then. The first is to say, not everybody in a church gathering is going to be a Christian. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Trusting in Jesus makes you a Christian. Trusting that Jesus can deal with your sin and make you right with God makes you a Christian. So it's preposterous, really, for us to talk about the Church of England, for example, the denomination I was ordained into. I think Paul would laugh at that. He would want to write to the Church of Christ, who are in Christ, and happen to be living in England, or Ellsfield, or wherever you happen to be. Uh, All of the people who are Christians are a church together, but not everybody who's in church is a Christian. It's helpful to know that. The second thing to notice is every Christian is equal. Equally addressed, Paul is writing to all the saints. Equally commended, equally partners, just regardless of what their roles are. And equally expected, as we'll see, to live as servants of Christ. There is no special uh, role of priest, as far as Paul is concerned. No special uh, role of uh, overseers and deacons. They, they exist, they're helpful for the church, but they don't make you a super-Christian. Every Christian together, everyone trusting in Christ, has the same privilege, the same relationship with God, and the same responsibility to live that out. So as we look at this letter to the Philippians, let me say, it's going to challenge every Christian in the room. You cannot be a backseat Christian. Every one of us is expected to step up, to be a partner in the work. And let me say, if if you're looking in on Christian things and you're wondering, is this a true church? Well, use your eyes. If we are living out what this passage tells us, if we're living like Jesus does, if we're thinking like Jesus does, if we're serving each other like Jesus did, well then we're a true church and you can stick it with us. Come and be part of the church. So Paul is excited to write to this servant church. Point two, 
because of their ongoing partnership in the gospel, verses 3 to 8. Notice, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I want to notice two things in these verses down to verse 8. The first is this, the God-given reality of partnership. The partnership exists. It's a historic partnership from the first day until now. Ten years of labouring together in the gospel. The word partnership, which is a big idea through the rest of the letter, means energetic, wholehearted, active and consistent engagement in an activity. Everyone pulls their weight. Everyone works hard together. Don Carson says, The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. It's a a word that comes out of the business realm. You'll know it well if you work in the city. The business has an aim. It has a trade and a means of achieving that trade to fulfil an aim. And even trivial things like how you dress are part of of the way you brand the business. Does that make sense? Uh, There is a vision, and we conform to the vision in a self-sacrificing way. That is what partnership means. And here it is the gospel vision of proclaiming Christ and living for Christ, come what may, uh, that Paul is engaged in and that the Philippians are engaged in with him. So it's a work that they're striving hard in, but it's a God-given work, notice. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, okay, that is looking back to the beginning of their partnership and saying, right from the beginning, God has begun a work in you. He's made you partners and he sustained you as partners from the beginning. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so Paul looks back to the beginning of their partnership and says, you've been partners from the beginning, And he looks forward to the day when Jesus returns and says, until that day, I know God is going to work in you to continue to be partners in the gospel. So notice that being a Christian is not a selfish thing. It's a partnership thing. It's self-sacrificial, subordinating our own ambitions and desires to the greater ambition of serving Jesus. So their partnership is a real one, but what does partnership actually look like? The God-given nature of partnership. Notice notice that it's co-partnering. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. That word share means co-partnership. It's the same root word as partnership in verse 5. And they're sharing together in grace. That word grace is a big Bible word. It means uh, God's free gift, undeserved, uh, to his people. But what is the gift in particular here? Let me suggest that it is uh, the suffering and the defence and confirmation of the gospel. Uh, Look at verses uh, 29 and 30. The same language is used, the same words. For it has been granted to you, literally graced to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul's in chains. They've heard about it. They've seen it, because Paul was imprisoned in Philippi at the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. We know that. He's still going through the same struggle, and they are sharing in that same struggle. You're going through the same struggle that you saw I had. 
It has been grace to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And so back here in verse 7. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God's grace to Paul, God's grace to the Philippians, is uh, the grace of enabling them to preach the gospel, to defend and confirm the gospel through suffering. So they partner in that suffering and proclamation ministry. And so Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. Literally, that word feel, it doesn't really translate well in English. Uh, It's right for me to be minded this way about you. And again, it's another big word through the book. So take a look at chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Or verse 5, your minding, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And I can multiply uh, occasions through the book. It's a big idea. They are partnering actively, physically, in suffering and in in generosity towards Paul's ministry. And he is like-minded towards them. Because of their partnership, Paul is minded the same way towards them as they are towards him. Co-partners, sharing in grace. And that overflows, doesn't it, into joyful affection expressed in prayer. Do you notice that? God can testify, verse 8, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And again, I don't want to steal Andy's thunder, but do, uh, in the week, have a look at chapter 2. And the way Christ loved his people enough to step out of all glory in heaven, come to earth as a man, and then humble himself to the point of death on the cross for his people. That's the sort of affection that God has for his people, that Christ has for his people. And so it is with Paul towards the Philippians. They're co-partners, and he delights in them. He loves them. It's right for me to think, be minded, feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. Verse 7. Or verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And again, because of your partnership. Paul prays consistently, constantly, joyfully for these people that he loves deeply because they partner with him in the gospel. So again, what does that say to us? Energetic striving together is evidence of God's work in us. Paul looks at the work that God has done in their partnership and will do until the day when Jesus returns and says, that's proof that God's at work in you. And so it's a question for us. Are we of one mind in the gospel as a church here? Are we standing together, striving together with all our energy, conforming to the image of Jesus, seeking to proclaim and defend the gospel, seeking to do that through whatever comes It involves collaboration. It's it's work that Paul is doing with them as a whole church. Every person together standing for the gospel. Uh, In Philippians terms, it involves money. Uh, Helping Paul out in his imprisonment. Making sure that there are people to proclaim the gospel, to spread the good news. It involves people, sending people. Epaphroditus, Timothy, backwards and forwards. Making sure the partnership stays strong. And it involves prayer. Paul persistently praying with joy for them. So let me ask you, who are you praying for? Who do you praise God for? Do you, when you turn to pray, do you think, gosh, those people, I'm so delighted to see their partnership with me in the gospel. Your home group, perhaps. 
members of your church family here, mission partners that you think, I really feel a kinship with them because they're engaged in the same ministry that I have. Because it is possible that if we're not conscious of other people partnering in this ministry, it's because we're not partnering ourselves. Are we focused in this direction? Are we committed to the gospel cause? So Paul's told us that he prays, he's told us why he prays, and in verses 9 to 11 he tells us what he prays. Paul prays for purity and blamelessness. Just look down with me. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Love here is not a a mushy, sentimental, rom-com, emotional thing. Nice though that would be. It is considering other people to have a high value and committing yourself to loving them, come what may. And I guess uh, it's an idea that we know from marriage. Paul is committed in the same way to them, and he prays for them that their love for him and for others would be just like that. They're doing it already. You already love. Now I want you to do it more and more. So let me say, do you want to grow in love for other Christians? Do you want them to grow in love for each other and for you? Then pray. But what do you pray? He wants this abundant love. In what way? That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Here I think the knowledge is an experiential knowledge. It's not simply intellectual. It is uh, knowing God to be faithful in uh, the week by week, year by year, walking with him. I guess the Philippians could look back on ten years of God's faithfulness to them and to Paul in hard ministry. And they've experienced God's grace to them and they've experienced God's kindness to them. And Paul wants them to grow in that. Depth of insight, I think, speaks to a profound grasp of reality. Do they see the world the way God sees the world? Do they understand it at that sort of level? Because it's only understanding the world the way God does that they'll get the same priorities that God has. Paul wants them to grow in that. He prays for their growth in love, in the direction or fed by their growth in experiential knowledge and profound grasp of reality. To what end? So that you may be able to discern what is best. As I said earlier, we have uh, the circumcision party coming in saying you must adopt these religious rituals to be a proper Christian. Is that what's best? You have somebody coming along and saying, flee from suffering. It's not part of the the way Christ has, has called you to live. Paul's got it wrong. Run away. Is that what it means to do what's best? Paul wants them to discern what's best, what's ethical, what's the wise thing to do in every situation, so that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Purity here is uh, acting out of right motives from the heart. Blameless means uh, not unnecessarily offending people. I guess Paul offended people quite a lot, that's why he spent so much time in prison. Uh, But unnecessarily offending people. To be pure and blameless, to know what is right so you can be pure and blameless. It's a lifelong pursuit of godliness, to grow more and more like Jesus. And it is like Jesus. Do you notice verse 11? Filled with the fruit 
that is the godliness, the fruit of righteousness, that is the fruit that is righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, this is not Paul talking about the fact that when we become Christians, uh, we get Jesus' righteousness given to us, although that's true, and Paul would never deny it. He's talking about a righteousness in ourselves that comes through growing in godliness. Still ethics. But it comes from being connected to Jesus. It comes through Jesus Christ. Remember, he's talking to those who are the saints in Christ Jesus. So let me say, if you're somebody who loves the teaching of Jesus, the only way you'll ever put those things into practice is being connected to Jesus by trusting in Jesus. But Christ will work in us so that we become like him if we're trusting in him. And if you notice that all the way through, it is God working in them, and so they are to strive to work as well. God works, so we work together. And so do we make moral purity our aim? Do you pray for it? Do you strive for it? Do you pray for each other that that would be the case? And if you want moral purity, you're going to have to pray for a growing knowledge and depth of insight so that we can know what's the right thing to do. So it was such good news for us, wasn't it, that Andy preached to us last week on abortion. It's a hot topic subject in our culture. It's something that we need to be clear on so that we can discern what's best. It wasn't comfortable, but it was right. And similarly in our passage today, it addresses the prosperity gospel, which is abundant in many parts of the world and in our culture. The biggest church in, in London is a prosperity church in the East End. And they will say that Jesus' plan for you, God's plan for you, is health, wealth and happiness. And Paul, I think, wants to say, well, it wasn't like that for Jesus. He died on the cross deliberately. And it's not like that for me. I'm in prison because that's God's plan for me. And it's not God's plan for you, Philippians, either, because you're sharing in the same sufferings that I had and I still have. And then, actually, what the prosperity gospel does, it robs you of an experience of God's grace. Because suffering is part of God's gracious gift to his people, that as we proclaim the gospel and share in Christ's sufferings, we become more like him. And the prosperity gospel, we need to be able to discern that it's wrong. We need to see that it doesn't give us at the right things. It robs us of God's grace to us. So as I end, and as we begin this book, three things that I think we have to apply. The first is this, be a, be a partner. Uh, the whole church here in Philippi are partners in the gospel. There are no exemptions, no exceptions. Uh, they were a partnering church from the very beginning. People who've been converted a matter of weeks were generously sharing in suffering and in proclamation of the gospel. They were sharing in finance from the beginning. Paul says so in chapter 4. And so it would be right for us, if you, if you haven't done it yet, to pick up a giving form from Sarah at the back and to prayerfully think about giving. That's the, the occasion for the letter. It's their generosity towards Paul. So it's right for us to think that's what a partnering church looks like. And if she runs out, then do ask Sarah and she'll email you uh, a copy later. It's going to mean sharing in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. And I guess if you're a brand new Christian and you're, you're still struggling to know which end of the gospel to hold on to from time to time, then uh, pray for us. Pray for us older Christians who are uh, proclaiming the gospel week by week. Share in the defence and confirmation of the gospel in prayer with us. Those are things you can do to become partners immediately. 
And let me say again, if you are not a Christian here uh, this afternoon, but you love the teaching of Jesus and you find it compelling, you will not live that gospel out unless you become a partner with us. You will not live for Jesus or live by Jesus' means unless you are attached to Jesus by faith. Come and join us as a partner. And if you want to talk about that, come and find me or Andy afterwards. Secondly, grow in partnership. I guess a number of us will have been long-standing partners in the ministry here and elsewhere. And that is a wonderful thing. Paul prays that your love may abound more and more. That they might be better able to discern what is right. They might be more, more partnerish than they already are, if I can put it like that. Greater partners, more clearly partners, more willing to suffer, clearer in the gospel, more generous, more prayerful. Are we desperate to grow in that sort of knowledge and depth of insight so that we can become more and more like Jesus? I know the temptation myself, I guess some of you will know, that place where you reach where you think, I'm doing okay. There's nothing massively obviously wrong in my life. At least not that you guys see from week to week. And so we plateau, don't we? It becomes comfortable Christianity, and that's not what Paul is praying for them here. Paul's in prison, he knows the cost, and he prays that they will be able to stand more and more with him. Moral purity and blamelessness. Do we pray for it? Do we strive for it? Do we hold each other to account for it? Do we work together as partners together to hold each other to the standard of Christ? I hope that we do. I hope that's our ambition. I hope that's what we do in our home groups. I hope that's what we do in our private conversations. Lovingly and gently saying, look, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And finally, it would be remiss of me not to suggest praying for partners in the gospel. That's what Paul is talking about here, isn't it? He's talking about thanksgiving, verse 3. And he's talking about his prayer, verses 9 to 11. So it would be remiss if we didn't apply in that direction. We need to be praying people. We need to identify the people who are partnering with us in the gospel and pray for them. A growing love leads to a growing prayerfulness uh, for partners. So pray for your pastors. Pray for Andy. Pray for myself. Pray for anybody who stands up in front of you and tries to teach the Bible. You need us to do it well so that you hear God's voice so that you become more like Jesus. Pray for the elders. Uh, Pray for uh, the home group leaders. Pray for the people who are teaching your kids Sunday school. Uh, Pray for the parents here who are trying to raise their kids to know and love Jesus so that they can be partners from a young age. Pray for mission partners. Pray for anybody who is standing firm for the gospel. It's great that we, week by week we pray for our brothers and sisters in, in Syria and Somalia and other places, isn't it? People who are making an active stand in the face of very great hostility. Pray for them. They're partners with us in the gospel. Pray for everybody in the church because there are no backseat Christians. We all need to grow in knowledge and depth of insight, grow in purity and love. Let's do that together. And so I'm going to pray for us now. Uh, that we will do that to the glory and praise of God, verse 11, which is right. Let's pray. Our Father, praise you for your uh, very great work in uh, those of us who love the Lord Jesus. That you've brought us to faith. We pray that you would uh, bring to completion the work you've begun in us. Pray we wouldn't be passive in that, our Father. Pray that you would 
enable us to strive side by side, collaborating, strengthening each other, pointing each other to Jesus, that we might grow in our, our knowledge and depth of insight, grow in our love for one another, that we might be able to discern what is best in every situation, that we might never offend unnecessarily, but that we might do everything from a pure heart and in a blameless life until Jesus comes back for your glory. Amen. Well, we've got a couple of minutes. Um, I thought it'd be good. Sometimes we have questions after our uh, sermons, our talks. Uh, we won't do that today, but I was wondering whether, just in your thoughts right now, turn to the person beside you, someone perhaps you know well, just have a think about what is the maybe one or two things that you felt uh, as you went through that passage, as Ash explained it so clearly, that you feel that you want to take home with you and apply to your heart, perhaps something to challenge you, perhaps something you want to ask a question of Ash later um, over coffee. Well, just quickly, it, doesn't, it shouldn't be quiet now. You can chat, uh, you know, speak to each other, two or three minutes, have a think, uh, and then uh, we'll carry on and finish our service off. Forget.